You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 4th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. I think this summit will be an attempt to paper over the cracks. I think they want to try and put on a show of unity. As a video of world leaders giggling at Donald Trump goes viral, we ask whether the special 70th anniversary NATO summit is doing more to drive apart than bring together. My guests Carol Walker and Robert Fox will discuss that and the day's other news, including does the world need another think tank? And as this year's Turner Prize nominees announce they are all all the winners, we ask if the spirit of competition can weather these inclusive times. Plus, what about the other aspect of eating? The part that pays less attention to Michelin stars and more to what is being cooked inside homes. By this metric, any Italian city excels, as do many in France. Australia does pretty well too. Why food culture doesn't just mean good restaurants, it means good grocers too. I am Marcus Hippi. Monaco's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Carol Walker, political analyst and former BBC political correspondent, and Robert Fox, defence editor at the London Evening Standard. Welcome to the programme. Let's start with the ongoing NATO summit here in the UK. It is meant to mark the 70th anniversary of the military alliance, but disagreements have threatened to overshadow celebrations. Robert the summit began yesterday with US President Donald Trump's attack on French President Emmanuel Macron, as Macron had earlier called NATO brain dead. What did you make of that? Well, Trump uh, absolutely played to uh, his 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 absolute. He 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 was being completely consistent um, in that. In that, he likes strong men uh, who he thinks like him, and he hates rivals. Uh, that's the crudity of it. But um, Macron has come in for something of a beating, not only for Trump, but also from the German leadership for suggesting somehow that there could be a displacement or a replacement or a winding down in Europe for European security of NATO and building up the defense component of the European Union, the EEDU. And the other thing that um, which, which Germany is not prepared to accept, it's not prepared to accept, by the way, also the NATO norm that they go up to 2% of GDP. Uh, they, they say we're 10 or 12 years off that. And by the way, if they were to do it tomorrow, they'd be the third military power in the world. But um, the engagement with Russia is really terribly, terribly important. Macron, the Italians particularly, to say we must engage uh, w- with Russia. Um, you know, that uh, despite everything, it's a pity that the, the, the NATO arrangements have really gone into neglect there. And this has enraged, of course, the new eastern partners of uh, of NATO. There is real substance to this row, but I don't want to take up the conversation and dominate it. But actually, there is more to Macron's argument than he's been given credit for. Let's talk about Russia in a moment, but but Carol, as Robert mentioned over there, there are big questions now within the NATO over the future of the alliance, over money and also over Turkey's behaviour. Do you think this summit in the UK will find any solutions? 
I think this summit will be an attempt to paper over the cracks. I think they want to try and put on um, a show of unity. We've had uh, the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, arriving, saying that it is one for all and all for one. And Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, saying it's the most successful alliance in history because we've changed as the world has changed. But I think the problem is that it hasn't sufficiently adapted to the changing attitudes of some of its key players. Um, That comment from President Macron about NATO being brain dead was because he is looking at NATO, which is after all a political as well as a military alliance. You have now got uh, in the American President Trump, someone who has questioned America's engagement in the alliance uh, in the past, although he's now saying he's committed to it. You have had Turkey, which didn't even consult key NATO allies before it waded into Syria. And what you've got now is this alliance that was constructed to, during the uh, at the end uh, uh, to try and confront the Soviet bloc during the Cold War, which hasn't really worked out what its strategic purpose is now. And although there's a lot of talk now about what the attitude to w- will be towards China, what it will be towards cyber threats and so on, it hasn't really worked out a new overall strategic direction. And I think that's what President Macron was referring to. So, Robert, looking at this strategy and what NATO's function is at the moment, is there any agreement between the states, member states, over who or what is the biggest threat at the moment? Is it Russia? Is it terrorism or what? No, this is, this, is, um, this is high theology, which has been around. I was at the think tank forum called Engagement NATO yesterday. And it was very interesting, by the way, how there was a generation split there. A lot of young people, they had a lot of the debates only open to people speaking from the floor if they were under 35. It sounds a bit, a bit mad, a bit woke, but it was terrific. It was terribly important. And you saw really what a fundamental difference was. And this is an enormous area of debate. And you're absolutely right in your question. And I'm going to illustrate it only with one anecdote. There were three prime ministers in succession on the stage. Together, there was Justin Trudeau and Mark Rutte of uh, the Netherlands, uh, absolutely accomplished Euro, uh, Euro performer, Rutte. But before him, there was the extraordinary, absolutely straight out of Borgen, Erna Solberg of Norway. Ernest Solberg was asked to consider the whole scenario, Russia, the works that they know about it, what is your greatest strategic threat, the melting of the ice cap. Justin Trudeau was hopeless. He was absolutely his mother's son, and it was applehood and mother pie and hugging trees, and we're really really for peace. And actually, in fact, he did down what the Canadians have been doing in Syria and Afghanistan. They're They're darn good fighters. Most intriguing was Rutte. You thought he would be the most accomplished. God, talk about a snake oil salesman. He would not put his hand up for anything, not even a commitment for about the second or third richest country in the EU uh, and NATO putting its hand in its pocket to go to 2% of GDP. He said, no, we're not going to do it. So that tells you where we are. There is a fractured leadership on generation lines. Absolutely what Carol Carol said. It's going to hold together for the time being. But to come back to Macron, I'm not going into detail... In all seriousness, 
he did ask some very important questions because the foundation is a union of democracies and Turkey certainly doesn't look much like a democracy to most of the allies now. Let's look at the dynamics between the NATO leaders. There's a newly released video that seems to show Justin Trudeau, Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron make fun of Donald Trump. Are they ganging up on him? Well, it was some wonderful footage, which uh, any of our listeners could probably find fairly easily with a a, a quick um, search on the internet of them at the reception at Buckingham Palace. And they do seem to be poking fun at Trump for wading in with his own little impromptu news conference um, yesterday. I think we shouldn't make too much of that specific incident. But I think that what it does is show this uh, this real concern that there is and the suspicion of where Trump really is on this. Um, we know that he doesn't really like these multilateral organisations. We know that he's been hugely critical of, in particular, many of the European members of NATO for not putting sufficient funds and sufficient um, resources into the NATO pot. He's been very critical of that. Um, he seems so far on this trip to have been on his best behaviour, trying to say that, um, trying to stay out of the UK election, which is something that the uh, conservatives who are battling away with polling day um, just a week or so away now. He, he pulled back from wading too much into the election campaign. He has kept his comments pretty supportive of NATO. But I think when you saw that little vignette of the other world leaders apparently mocking Trump, mm-hmm. underlying that is that are these big doubts about whether Trump's heart really still is in the NATO alliance. Look, Euro detachment didn't become with Trump. Uh, Obama, hugely popular in Europe, was far more Eurosceptic almost than people around Trump. I think it's terribly healthy that Macron and uh, Boris and Justin Trudeau were chatting away. They are mates, actually. They're, they're, they're interesting, intelligent, warm people. And that's the great thing. And it, it, it's great for my country, Britain. Whatever you say about Boris, and I know him well, he does engage and they like talking to him. And he was having a sip of champagne, even though he'd promised he wasn't going <laughs> to touch a drop of drink until Brexit is sorted. And that, that, that's my Boris. <laughs> and just, just finally, before we move on, obviously we have to talk about how Trump's visit is reflected in the UK politics right before general election. So, so Carol, what is interesting is that we haven't seen that many photos of Trump and Johnson together this time, for example, have we? No, extraordinary the lengths to which Downing Street has gone to to try to prevent photos of um, President Trump and Boris Johnson um, buddying up together. And when you think about previous uh, visits of US Mm. presidents, it is really quite extraordinary. But the backdrop to this is that uh, Boris Johnson's opponent, Jeremy Corbyn, One of the central themes of his attack on the Conservatives is that we're going to get a Trump-style US-UK trade deal if the Conservatives win and that that will push up drugs prices in the National Health Service and it's going to cost us all hundreds of millions of pounds every week now. The uh, Conservatives have flatly denied that. They flatly denied that the NHS will be affected in any future trade deal. But the problem is that in the UK, Trump is not exactly a popular figure. And I think the Conservatives, who are ahead in the polls at the moment, know that if 
Boris is seen to be cozying up too much to his old friend Donald, that that is not going to play well with the British electorate. And that's why, even though they did meet in Downing Street last night, there were no pictures of the two of them together. Robert Fox and Carol Walker there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Yolinka Fa with some of the other stories we've been following today. NATO leaders are holding formal talks to mark the alliance's 70th anniversary. The two-day summit, which is taking place at a hotel on the outskirts of London, has been overshadowed by tension between the allies. Spending and the alliance's relationship with Turkey are expected to dominate proceedings. The European Court of Justice has dismissed the Czech Republic's legal challenge against the ban on semi-automatic rifles. The EU measures are intended to curb gun violence and prevent terrorists from acquiring weapons on the black market. They were introduced following terrorist attacks in 2015. Judges on Brazil's electoral court have voted to make it easier to register new political parties. It's thought that the decision will benefit the country's current president, Jair Bolsonaro, who has pledged to start a new movement following a spectacular falling out with his social liberal party. And Monocle Minute reports that two New York City council members are attempting to create an office of active transportation and an office of pedestrians at the city hall. The goal is to accelerate efforts to improve safety on the streets. For more on this story, head to monocle.com slash minute. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Jolene. This is Monocle's House View. I am Marcus Hippi here with Carol Walker and Robert Fox. Let's then continue to the US where two billionaires from opposite ends of the political spectrum have announced that they are launching a new think tank. George Soros and Charles Koch have banded together to create the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which will focus on promoting peace and diplomatic agreement rather than war and military action in US foreign policy. Robert, does the world need yet another think tank? No. Why? (laughs) There are too many. And these two have been, they're repeat offenders. And I think this is quite, I don't say sinister because it's so transparent. It's very, very suspect. Um, What Soros, this great, uh, generous um, insider dealer, super trader, and he gave his money away in the true robber baron tradition of the Rockefellers and the Carnegie's to these scholarships. But unfortunately, one of his scholarships went to one Victor Orban and he went to Oxford where he met a man called Norman Stone. And of course, the rest is history. And that has led to the expulsion of Soros from Europe in a way. He doesn't have the traction that he had before. Now, with we know. Um, I've, I've read the articles, the suggested article from Politico, not exactly tree-hugging and pinko in its political line, and it, 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 it leaves out the crucial fact. What is it about the Koch Foundation and what is it about Soros? They've been in fossil fuel energy. And that is the basis of, 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 of what the Koch have been about. And they, the, the, the Koch enormous funds have been behind a whole string of think tanks identified in The Guardian last Friday, and they've inspired a lot of the true libertarian economic thinking, which is particularly driving the Conservative Party at the moment. They've all studied with this, um, with, with these think tanks, with the exception of one person who just received a small prize from them, one Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. And there's just a chance, if Boris gets a substantial m- majority, knowing him a bit, he will Welsh on anything. And Look, I think he's going to go to the centre and he's going to reject all this. So, Sir Karen, what is this think tank all about? And are these two, two billionaires, how uneasy bedfellows are? Well, it is interesting to see um, two 
to players from different ends of the political spectrum. Although, as Robert's just been pointing out, that there, there is there are areas Synergies. where their uh, <laughs> agendas overlap somewhat. The idea is that they want to galvanise opinion on the right and the left to oppose intervention, military intervention overseas. And I think what is fascinating here, look, there are all kinds of different think tanks funded by different benefactors right across the political spectrum. I'm not sure there's any problem with having yet another one. Um, there are lots of different ones. There are, there are think tanks on the left as well as those uh, on the right. I think what's interesting here is that their objectives actually chime with Trump's agenda of America first and pulling troops, pulling American troops out of foreign engagements. And I think the problem here is that if we see the US looking simply to its own interests, not wanting to get involved too heavily uh, in these wider strategic alliances, you have think tanks like this saying, let's not get involved. The danger with that is that it simply leaves the field free for Putin. Russia, we've already seen extending its sphere, um, not just into Ukraine and, and parts of Europe, but into Africa and, of course, being a significant player in Syria. And, of course, China also looking to expand its sphere of influence. And I think when you have a think tank like this chiming with Trump's approach, saying, let's not bother about the rest of the world. Let's just look at America's interests. Uh, the danger is that other superpowers are going to wade in and take up that space. Exactly, Robert. Is there any, is it realistic at all to, to try to promote this kind of isolationism? It's isolationist libertarianism. It is absolutely free from intervention. This is the thing. It, it's this sort of total free trade total um, uh, deregulation, which is the core of the Brexit me uh, message. No, it makes no sense at all. I wanted to mention today, can I remember, my, my hero, Ivan Krustev, has a wonderful article in the New York Times and his book, absolutely, I think it's one of the books of the year, The Light That Failed. The fact is that if you break up like this and if you say that actually consensual, libertarian, democratic capitalism, which was supposed to be so triumphant after 1989, has failed... But you have got to have some sort of world order or some order in its place. And I believe, sorry to go back, that is au fond, the right word, what Macron is getting at. And I think that Boris, who is a manoeuvrer, Boris Johnson is sharp enough that, to realise now that actually long-term isolationist libertarianism, little England nationalism, won't work at all for, uh, for the UK. And by the way, the American think tanks love the UK, uh, particularly, uh, you know, the, the image of Mrs. Thatcher. They have think tanks in her, in, in her own name. And if it goes sour in the UK in the next five years, which it may well do, I think that it's, it's trouble for the whole Trump tribe and all that core of thinking which Carol has explained. Carol, how do you see the relationship between two, these two billionaires, I have to ask again? Do you think they are agreeing on many other topics? Well, I think where they have their, this shared approach is this... This, this suspicion of um, global elites, if you like, even though in some ways they are a part of a their own encouraged it too. global elite. Um, but I think what is interesting is that they are reflecting this 
populism, if you like, on both the right and the left that we are seeing, where you have leaders, and, and we've got it almost mirrored in, here in the UK election, where you have political leaders saying, let's look after our own interests back at home. This is about uh, Soros and Koch both saying, let's look after America's interests. Let's not try and intervene and make the world a better place. Look, the problem is that global interventions have um, hardly been uh, glowing examples of success. If you look at the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, um, that there are huge problems in the way they were conducted, in the failure to think through the aftermath, in the failure to and in envisage, and, and in the intent, and in the reasons that people were given for that. Um, but, but people like Tony Blair, who of course was a very powerful proponent of global uh, global intervention. His argument was, look, we have got to do this as a force for peace to stand up on the on the on the citizens of those countries. No one is making that argument now. And just finally, oh, I disagree entirely with that. The wheel is turning already. The tide is going out on authoritarian populism because of this. Intervention with a small eye is back on the agenda because of ecological, environmental, climate change and migration. And that's the dog that is trying to bar it is just yapping at the NATO summit but it is something that the French have mentioned it's the Italians the Spanish uh, uh, are, are very very worried about it they're not being listened to at all and when, they're struggling to get their voices heard that's what, the point what, I'm what making I will tell you a whole lot of intellectual institutes institutions were asked to contribute to the debate the forum I went to yesterday do you know who was the no show probably the most prestigious of the lot Sciences Po the Polytechnique in France, they just said, a lot of this is just rhetoric and grandstanding. And I think they're very probably right. And just one more story to discuss today <laughs> between you two. Finally, on today's panel, one of the world's most prestigious art awards, the 2019 Turner Prize, has for the first time ever been awarded to all four finalists. After a number of discussions between us, we came to a collective decision that we, the four nominated artists, are all the winners of this year's 2019 Herner Prize. So the, the nominees had asked the judges to treat them as one group, as a sign of solidarity in this divided world. Carol, what does this clip we just heard say about the autonomy of the judges? Well, what an extraordinary development this. I think um, the Turner Prize has, over the years, I think... Um, let's say, embraced the uh, controversies that have engulfed it over the years. Um, and I have to hold my hands up and say that I haven't seen these installations and I probably should study them closely, immerse myself in them before I go too far. But it does appear to me that this year the, the politics has rather overshadowed the art. Um, you've got four uh, different um, projects which are sharing this prize. They're all in their statement of deciding that they're going to have the prize collectively, making the point that they want to share it in the name of commonality, <laughs> multiplicity, solidarity in a divided world. Um, these are artists. Um, all, of course, politics plays a huge role in art. But shouldn't a, a Turner Prize 
be looking at how powerful the artistic message is, rather than making such a huge political statement. Yeah, Rob, no. you're shaking your head quite no. a lot. Do you think <laughs> award winners and losers are going out of fashion gradually? Uh, I, I All that, shall have prizes. I think, no, I think the Turner Prize has always been fun, and it has always on the on the international stage been quite eccentric, and it stood up for it. And I think it's so funny that the prize winners awarded themselves the prizes <laughs> this time. And you should see the right wing press about it, you know, harumphing away, there's no point, where are juries? I mean, there's been chaos in the Booker Prize, they ended up with two winners because my poor Margaret Atwood had been uh, overlooked, and then they overlooked the best writer, almost, the, with, 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 with a book uh, that, that had been chosen by the jury. I think um, the politics is in art and art is in the politics, and great, good on you to attend a prize. Carol, do you think there's going to be some comments about Snowflake Generation again being oh. too soft-hearted for old-fashioned competition? All shall have prizes in the um, school races. Um, I, I think that there is this sense now when these big prizes have always been somewhat farcical, uh, especially art. How can you judge the greatest work of art? Art, after all, is entirely subjective. I agree with but, you. Um, I, <laughs> but I do think in this case, you start to wonder, where is the art in all of this? Look, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I do have to hold my hands up that I haven't seen them. But, um, you know, Lawrence Abu Hamdan, his audio is about um, an investigation with amnesty into torture in a Syrian prison. Uh, Helen Kamnuk's is a documentary film about women in the Northern Ireland civil rights uh, struggle. Um, I, I just want to see where the art plays in all of this. And that is my question. Uh, I will go and have a look at this in Margate. And perhaps when I've seen all four of them, I will decide that they are so collectively worthy of a prize that it was the right decision. But I just have to question whether we shouldn't sort of think about whether this is art or whether the politics has completely taken over. And as somebody who is engrossed in politics, you know, perhaps that's something I just have to accept. Robert Fox and Carol Walker, thank you very much. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippie. Finally today, Monaco's Jamie Walters considers why a thriving food culture demands much more than a few good restaurants. Last week, a friend who recently moved to Copenhagen told me he doesn't think there's a particularly good food culture in the Danish capital. I was shocked. What about Noma, foraging, Smurbrod and all the brilliant bakeries? Yes, he conceded. You can certainly go out and eat very well, but there's a dearth of good supermarkets or corner stores stocked with quality produce, so when it comes to cooking at home, it's tough to feel inspired. Despite the relatively recent food revolution led by Denmark's René Redzepi, it seems that the culture of eating well is still working its way down to a grassroots cooking level. What makes a foodie city? We tend to think of it as being a place with an abundance of glamorous restaurants and slick cafes. But what about the other aspect of eating? 
the part that pays less attention to Michelin stars and more to what is being cooked inside homes. By this metric, any Italian city excels, as do many in France. Australia does pretty well too. So how does a place become a hub for stellar home cooking? Perhaps a series of accessible cookbooks that go viral would offer a spark. But as I'm sure any good cook would tell you, and I say this as someone who cannot cook, it has to start with inspiring ingredients. A great little supermarket chain focused on fresh produce could do wonders. I'm working on my new business pitch and planning a move to Denmark ASAP. That was Monocle's Jamie Waters, and that's all for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Jolin Goffin. Our studio managers were David Stevens and Steph Tungo. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, that is at 1800 London time. I am Markus Hippi. Thanks for listening and goodbye.